Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping. This Simon and Garfunkel song was topping the Billboard charts when John V. Lindsay was sworn in as New York City's 103rd mayor in January of 1966. Half of today's New Yorkers weren't even born during Lindsay's eight years in office, but they can now relive that time period thanks to a new documentary, book, and exhibit. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. John Lindsay's tumultuous two terms as mayor were marked by strikes, racial divisions, and fiscal problems. And more than 40 years later, his legacy remains as mixed as ever. Joining us now to talk about the Lindsay era is Tom Cachado. Tom's the executive producer of a new public television documentary called Fun City Revisited, The Lindsay Years. It premiered this week on 13 and will air again on WLIW 21 this Wednesday night at 10 o'clock. Tom, thanks for being here. Thank you. Also with us is Sam Roberts. Sam's the urban affairs correspondent for The New York Times and the editor of a new book called America's Mayor, John V. Lindsay and the Reinvention of New York. Sam, nice to see you. Thank you, George. Sam, set the scene for us. John Lindsay was elected mayor of New York City in 1965. He was sworn in in 1966. What did the city look like in 1965? Well, George, there's another song that comes to mind. In in addition to Simon and Garfunkel, a couple of weeks after Lindsay was elected, Man of La Mancha premiered in New York City. And the impossible dream, uh, which was embraced by every uh, group imaginable, sort of embodied what the Lindsay administration stood for in those early days. This, remember, was after the... optimism that was kindled by the Kennedy administration, rekindled to some extent by Lyndon Johnson and the War on Poverty, the Great Society. And John Lindsay embodied that in New York. Uh, One of the problems was that he raised expectations so high, many people uh, doubted whether he ever could or did deliver. But this was a city that uh, was looking for new leadership. It was a city that had had uh, three terms of Bob Wagner, a Democratic machine mayor for two terms that ran against the machine, a progressive mayor by any measurement, uh, but a city that looked to most people like it was going downhill and needed new leadership. John Lindsay was a Republican, but he had liberal party backing, right, Tom? He was a Republican, but back in the day, the Republicans, uh, especially in, in New York and in places like my home state of Oregon, were often extremely moderate. Lindsay represented the Upper East Side in Congress. He was not uh, particularly conservative by today's standards. In fact, he probably wasn't at all, which is why eventually he became a Democrat. He represented the Upper East Side. You know, silk stocking district, that was a new term for me, Sam. I didn't realize that the Upper East Side was referred to as the silk stocking district. It was indeed. There aren't too many silk stockings left, or you could argue many uh, more than there were at that time. But it was a rich district by most accounts. It was a wealthy East Side, Upper East Side Republican district. And Lindsay was elected there. It had often gone Republican. And uh, Lindsay was the latest person to inherit that seat. Uh, He survived uh, the... uh, Johnson landslide in 1964, which made him even more of a national hot property uh, before he got elected mayor. Who did he beat in 1965? Abe Beam, who was running as the Democrat uh, and uh, 
Buckley, who was running as a sort of fledgling conservative candidate, and arguably that Buckley candidacy uh, gave birth to much of the conservative movement, certainly in New York State and also in America. But John Lindsay did not win with a mandate. He won with just over 40 percent of the vote, right? He never won a majority of the vote, and one of the great things uh, for John Lindsay was that he was always the lone liberal against two more conservative candidates. And if that didn't happen, I think the chances are either time he probably would not have been elected. He did win with with less than 50 percent of the vote each time. And that makes you wonder what kind of a mandate he did or didn't have from people. But I really see Lindsay as someone who uh, who was in, in his own head in some ways. You brought up, you playing Simon and Garfunkel. Sam brought up Man of La Mancha. To me, the key song is Freddie Neal's Everybody's Talking. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Everybody's talking at me can't hear a word they're saying, only the echoes of my mind. That's how I think of Lindsay. And that song, Harry Nielsen's version, was the uh, emblematic song from Midnight Cowboy, which is the quintessential New York Lindsay Years movie. So you're going to hear that song in our film, several versions of it. And it was really when I associated Lindsay with Everybody's Talking that I began to really feel like I could understand him, that what he was doing, there wasn't necessarily a mandate. There wasn't necessarily a big call for it, and yet people loved him. Let me ask you this question. John Lindsay, no question, was a good-looking man. How much did that help him? A lot. He was not only good-looking, he was very tall. In fact, Jimmy Breslin wrote a piece that we excerpt in the book, uh, Is Lindsay Too Tall to Be Mayor?, and uh, he was he defined charisma. New York had rarely had a charismatic politician. You could argue Nelson Rockefeller was on the state level, uh, but uh, Bobby Kennedy, of course, was. But in terms of mayors, uh, you'd have to go back to LaGuardia, Jimmy Walker, to find a, a charismatic mayor. Certainly it was not uh, Wagner. Certainly it was not Vincent Impelitari. Uh It was not most of the people running against Lindsay. And he brought a certain elan, a certain enthusiasm, a certain degree of hope that uh, somehow these seemingly intractable urban problems could be wrestled to the ground. One of the things we, we forget is that you measure a mayor against the problems he or she inherited and the resources they were able to muster to deal with those problems, and then what kind of city they left. Well, you could say that there were plenty of better and worse mayors than John Lindsay. There were very few had, who had to govern in a worse period of time. And Murray Kempton's line that became the campaign slogan was, he is fresh and everyone else is tired, uh, mm-hmm. was absolutely true. He was a fresh face. He wasn't all that well-known outside of Manhattan. And again, he embodied the sense that something could be done. Now, decades later, at a birthday party for Lindsay, a, a former supporter or former worker yelled out, hey, Mr. Bayer, you're still fresh. Uh, and Lindsay replied, uh, no, uh, I'm tired and everyone else is dead. Uh, And that sort of amounted to uh, where the administration had gone over all those years. When it comes to bad first days at the office, John Lindsay had one of the worst. He walked into a transit strike here in New York City. He walked into a transit strike uh, by Mike Quill, who was the legendary leader of the Transport Workers Union. It was one of the legacies of Bob Wagner. He left him that strike. Wagner probably could have settled it, although you could make an argument, and I think some of the authors in our book do, that uh, 
the union had to strike at that point. It was facing a changing membership. It needed to flex its muscles a little bit. Like too many situations uh, that Lindsay confronted, he took a bad situation and made it worse. And that strike went on. Uh, it challenged people. It gave rise, uh, as uh, Tom knows, to the, the uh, uh, slogan uh, by Dick Schapp, Fun City, because uh, Lindsay said this still can be a fun city to be in even when there's a strike on. Well, it was no fun for most people, and it sort of defined the administration, defined uh, the tone of uh, what City Hall was was in terms of its dealings, particularly with the unions, and it created a great deal of contention that would last for years. I would add to that, uh, your choice of words is interesting. He walked into the transit strike, indeed, because there was no other way to travel. But also, Lindsay became known as the mayor who walked, who walked through New York City, who walked through the toughest neighborhoods during the toughest times. He was out there among the people. As I grew up in Oregon, and I knew about the mayor of New York who walked through the city, and he started walking that very first day, and he was going to walk, and he was going to walk to work and see that others walked to work, and that really set the tone for the Lindsay administration in ways that he might not have imagined when he was getting into it. And, George, you know, people may think it's quaint now to talk about the fact that New York City didn't burn during the 1960s, but it certainly wasn't quaint then. It was something that was very real. It was something that was happening in other big cities around the country, and the reason that when Martin Luther King was assassinated and Harlem stood on the brink of erupting in violence, uh, when Lindsay walked those streets, he had the credibility because, as Tom said, this wasn't his first visit to Harlem. He wasn't he, a new face in the he neighborhood. He was not a new face in the neighborhood, in many neighborhoods around the city. Many neighborhoods didn't necessarily welcome him, but they sure knew him, and they really knew that he cared. He had empathy when empathy wasn't a bad word. Black neighborhoods here in New York City referred to him as the black mayor. Right, Tom? Yes. Just as Bill Clinton was later the black president until we had a black president. And if you look at uh, at the two things that uh, probably best describe his legacy, uh, they were two things that weren't, as Tom says, necessarily expected. One is his uh, relationship with the black and the smaller Hispanic community at the time. Uh, and two was the, the quality of the people he attracted to city government, uh, people who stayed on in government or came back to government and did an enormous amount of uh, creative work. Uh, the only other person I could think of who did something similar was Governor Hugh Carey. Uh, and then, of course, Ed Koch inherited some of those people from Carrie and Lindsay. But Lindsay had that charisma. He embodied uh, a certain spirit, and people wanted to come work for New York City. John Lindsay appointed the city's first black fire commissioner. Yes, indeed he did, uh, and made other appointments uh, of people. I mean, then the fire commissioner, remember, the fire department still is hardly known as the most integrated department in city government. So imagine appointing a black fire commissioner back in 1965. It had enormous impact, and it was intended to have enormous impact. It was intended to send a signal. Perhaps, you know, when we can discuss this some more, the, the worst thing that Lindsay did was when he talked about in the Kerner Commission report a society that was riven between a black society and a white society. He did not do enough to bridge the gap between them. In fact, you can make an argument that if you look back, certainly in retrospect, at Ocean Hill-Brownsville school dispute, at Forest Hills housing, uh, that he further polarized the city uh, rather than brought people together. Let's take one step back here. The Kerner Commission was set up 
by the White House. It was a commission to investigate civil disorder nationwide, correct? It, it was indeed, and Lyndon Johnson was very afraid toward the end of it uh, that it was going to become critical of the Johnson administration and what it had done or what it had not done enough of. And it was very interesting because the night before the commission was expected to vote on its report, Lindsay J. Kriegel, a number of other people working for him, Lindsay was the vice chairman, uh, wrote an introduction that in fact encompassed all of the major points that were in the report and came up with that uh, now famous line about a society, two societies, one black and one white, uh, and that captured the public's attention to a great extent. Unfortunately, it did not serve as the domestic agenda that Lindsay and uh, some of the people on the commission hoped it would. Tom, how resentful was the white middle class in New York City of the mayor's relationship with the black community and of his investment in social programs? Because he did a lot to boost welfare programs in the city. Well, I think that you know, you could say it was a black-white thing, but I think it was also a services-no-services thing. I think that when the great Queen's snow came in 1969 and people weren't getting their streets plowed who lived in Queens and they saw that the people in Manhattan were driving up and down without any problems, they were angry and, and upset. And those were mostly white working-class people. And there may have been some resentment they directed toward Lindsay because they thought he was helping people on welfare or whatever else it was. But they actually really wanted and really deserved to have their streets plowed. I think Tom is right. There was a Manhattan-centric uh, feeling about the administration. He was from Manhattan. Uh, he was dubbed a limousine liberal. Uh, but I think there was, in fact, a racial overlay to all of this, a very, very profound one. It was a time when we were going through the civil rights movement. Remember the 60s, you know, however we define them, really didn't begin until John Lindsay became mayor in 1965, at least didn't begin in New York. And you had uh, civil rights, uh, women's rights, to a lesser extent at the time, gay rights. Uh, you had the war in Vietnam, and that was a class and to some extent race um, yes. uh, controversy too. So I think race imbued every aspect of, of the reaction plus and minus to the Lindsay administration. And a lot of the, the concern over the fact people weren't getting services in Queens and Brooklyn, the Bronx, Staten Island, was the sense that, well, all the money is going to welfare. And who is on welfare? The, the black and Hispanic people of the city, not the poor whites. John Lindsay was a staunch opponent of the Vietnam War. How did that impact his administration and it his relationship? him. Uh, is what it did. In 69, as in 65, he found himself running against two conservative candidates. And the war, uh, as well as Golda Meir's visit, as well as the Mets' victory, as well as a lot of other serendipitous things that Lindsay was able to take advantage of, re-elected John Lindsay. You touched on this earlier, the issue with the Ocean Hill-Brownsville schools. And of course, that resulted in a teacher strike that lasted for quite some time. This was over his plan to decentralize, correct? It was in part a Ford Foundation plan. It was embraced by the Lindsay administration. And it could have worked, arguably, if uh, they had done a experimental district in Ocean Hill-Brownsville and maybe in Forest Hills at the same time, picked a you know solidly white middle class or lower middle class district to try the same thing. But again, this looked like black and Hispanic teachers of black and Hispanic children ousting, overruling uh, Jewish teachers uh, who were the predominant uh, majority in the school system without seniority rights. It was an anti-union thing or viewed as that. 
uh, and it just created more tumult and several teacher strikes and further poisoned the atmosphere and polarized the city. And of course, this wasn't his only big defeat. He created the Civilian Complaint Review Board to look into allegations of police misconduct, and the PBA fought hard against it, got a referendum put on the ballot, and he lost another big defeat for John Lindsay. Before he was even mayor, he said, I want a Civilian Complaint Review Board, and when he got elected, he did it by executive order. And what he was saying is, and you can make an argument today with stop and frisk, uh, a lot of the same issues resonate. He wanted people to have faith that the police were going to administer justice fairly, and a lot of people in the city did not have that faith. Again, you could look at that in racial terms uh, quite easily, uh, but then the PBA mounted a campaign, as you say, to overturn it and did that successfully and dealt uh, Lindsay a very stunning defeat in his first year in office. The beat goes on. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. John Lindsay served as mayor of New York City from 1966 to 1973. Forty-five years after he took office, a new documentary, book, and exhibit are taking an in-depth look at his administration. Right now, we're talking with New York Times urban affairs correspondent Sam Roberts. Sam's the editor of the new book, America's Mayor, John V. Lindsay and the Reinvention of New York. Also with us is Tom Cachado. He's the executive producer of a new public television documentary called Fun City Revisited, The Lindsay Years. John Lindsay was referred to, Tom, as the first media mayor, and your documentary includes a lot of his media. Well, the media is fantastic. I have to say, as a documentary subject, Lindsay is just about perfect, and and this is just about the perfect time for a Lindsay documentary, because so many people around him who were drawn to him as young people are still around to talk about him. So though he is gone, those fabulous campaign commercials, those fabulous press conferences all still exist. And the people who were there and can talk about it are still around and vigorous. And it really makes, and the, and the music from that era is so fantastic. And we use a lot of it in the film. And you really get the sense of New York at that time. And, um, you know, you were saying the city was so different then. When you're making a film, you're really making it for everybody. And I'm thinking of like 25-year-olds for whom John Lindsay is like Ulysses S. Grant, is like Alexander the Great, is like something from a long, long time ago. And we're trying to bring people in, as I'm sure Sam is trying to do with his book, and really give them a look at what New York was like in living memory for other people. The video footage, no question, is priceless. I mean, the shots that you have of the city, of the dirty city, of the garbage piling up during the garbage strike. And then this incredible-looking guy, his hair blowing in the wind in these 1965 campaign commercials, which are in black-and-white 16-millimeter film. Um, they're, they're just amazing by today's standards. A lot of people blame John Lindsay for the fiscal mess the city found itself in in the 1970s. Is that fair? I think it's totally fair uh, to blame him, at least give him part of the blame. One of the things I discovered in writing a chapter in this book is how much of the fiscal gimmickry actually began under his predecessor, Bob Wagner, and for the very same reasons. Uh, there was pressure to spend money uh, on legitimate social goals. And where was that money coming from? It was coming from borrowing because uh, even then, in the late 1950s, certainly early 1960s, the c city was spending more than it was taking in. And eventually, 
eventually those gimmicks caught up with it. Uh, nobody thought they would. Uh, nobody thought the banks would pull the plug, especially while Nelson Rockefeller was the governor and his brother was the head of Chase. Ultimately, uh, by 1975, after Lindsay was gone, uh, after Rockefeller was gone as governor, at least, the banks did just that, and the city wound up on the brink of bankruptcy. You spoke to a lot of folks who support that in your documentary, including former Mayor Ed Koch, Tom. Well, he certainly, uh, Koch certainly pointed out that this started with Wagner, and I think talking about history is always a tricky thing because history involves everything that's ever happened. But when we talk about it, we pick a date. We pick a time when we want to start talking about it. So if you pick the time as John Lindsay's first day in office to start talking about what were the roots of the economic crisis in New York City, then you'd say, well, it was the Lindsay years. Um, but I think Sam is, is exactly right. I think we, we need to look further and deeper to really find those roots. Sam, has the city learned from any of those mistakes? That's a very good question. Uh, I think the city has learned. Uh, I think this mayor has learned. I think you could argue that Rudy Giuliani had not learned as well in terms of his uh, treatment of uh, of some black and Hispanic elected officials and individuals. Uh, I think people realize that you have to be mayor of all of the city and try to bring all the factions together. This is a city of minorities. There is no majority now. If there was one back in the 60s, certainly uh, it's a much more diverse city. And you've got to be the mayor of all of the people. In 1971, John Lindsay cut ties with the Republicans and joined the Democrats. He then went on to launch a bid for the 1972 Democratic presidential nomination. But that was pretty short-lived, right? He did get that up pretty quickly right after the Wisconsin primary. I think uh, it was ill-advised. Many people might have a different opinion. I think it diluted a lot of his strength and his credibility. One of the reasons he did it was not necessarily because he thought he would be president or vice president, but he wanted to call attention to urban issues. Uh, I think there might have been other more effective ways he could have done it than uh, uh, undermine his own credibility and, and political potency in the process. What happened to John Lindsay after he left office, Tom? Uh, you know, I, I, I get back to Fred Neal, who kind of disappeared. Um, <laughs> Lindsay, in the years after 1973, did he run for Congress, Sam? He was ran there? for Senate, oh, was U.S. Senate, Senate for the Democratic nomination. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know that much about his years afterwards. That's the answer, though. Uh, not many people do. He sort of faded away. I think he was tired, uh, and everyone else was dead. Uh, and it's funny because uh, there was another Murray Kempton line uh, uh, in the book that says, you know, it, it's mean-spirited for us to make fun of John Lindsay because you don't mock the innocent and the brave. And I don't think anyone uh, could deny, certainly, that Lindsay was brave in a lot of what he did, maybe a little too innocent sometimes. All right. Is there anything either of you two want to add that we didn't talk about? I think just that, uh, as Tom says, it's very important for us to learn history and remember uh, that we're all part of a continuum, something we often forget in the city. We're so focused on today and maybe even tomorrow that we forget uh, about looking back and what we can learn from it. I also think that Lindsay really exposes a lot of nerves in people. Whether it's they love him, they hate him, they respect what he did, they consider him the, what caused the downfall of New York City at that time. Because we're in 2010, you get to take part in all of this now. We have a place on our website at 13.org slash Lindsay where people can uh, bring their memories of Lindsay and they can talk about it. And, you know, if I'd have made this film 20 years ago, people would have saw it and they would have gotten mad and looked at the screen or they would have said, oh, I love that. But they couldn't do anything about it. Now you can. Now you can you can be part of this and, and you can be part of the remembrance of the Lindsay years. Tom Cachado, thank you so much. Thank you. Sam Roberts, thank you. Pleasure.
Tom Cachado is the executive producer of a new public television documentary called Fun City Revisited, The Lindsay Years. You can watch it Wednesday night at 10 on WLIW 21. Sam Roberts is a New York Times reporter and the editor of a new book called America's Mayor, John V. Lindsay and the Reinvention of New York. An exhibit by the same name is now open at the Museum of the City of New York. My name is Sarah Henry, and I'm the deputy director and chief curator of the Museum of the City of New York. What a body of work of the Lindsay era here at the museum that you have put together. Well, thank you. We have over 400 objects and images gathered in from sources, private collections, uh, major archival repositories, and it really does make a mosaic of uh, a very, a very um, tumultuous and busy era. <laughs> Tumultuous is right. We had labor problems. We had all sorts of fiscal problems. Well, the first section of the exhibition actually is called Tumultuous City, and it's about the racial conflicts, the strikes. Mayor Lindsay described his job as the second toughest job in America. Mm -hmm. In 1969, he was running for re-election, and it didn't look good for him. He had uh, not been re-nominated by his own party, the Republican Party. Large portions of the city were very, very angry at him particularly in blue-collar neighborhoods in the outer boroughs, but not only there. People were really disillusioned with the direction the city was going. And he ran a campaign in which his slogan was the second toughest job in America. And he did pull out a victory in 1969, apparently against uh, all odds, in part because he was in, he was in a three-way race. So he didn't win a majority, but he did get reelected to a second term. Now, apparently, people young and old had problems with the Lindsay administration. You have a great letter, a large letter written in there by a kindergarten class. It's a kindergarten class from Brooklyn, and it was after the, it was during the, uh, the great snowstorm in February 1969. And this has became one of the hot-button political issues in Mayor Lindsay's re-election, uh, because the residents of Brooklyn and Queens felt that he had not responded to the snow emergency appropriately and that in fact this became to them a symbol of his disregard for the issues confronting their neighborhoods. They felt that he spent a lot of time on the minority neighborhoods and addressing issues of racial equality and that he didn't really get the issues that were facing them. And in 1969, a kindergarten class wrote an enormous oak tag letter to John Lindsay saying, uh, we want you to come plow our streets here. Our daddies can't go to work. And we're sending you a picture of a snow plow in case you forgot what one looks like. I think, if nothing else, that letter answers the critics. The critics who say they thought that this exhibit would be more about glorifying the Lindsay administration, trying to rehabilitate his image because some of the funding did come from former associates and aides. The the Museum of the City of New York has done a series of exhibitions on on, uh, recent political history and we in fact think that that's very important for New Yorkers now. So we don't think there's a more appropriate place in the city to do an exhibition on John Lindsay in a balanced and neutral way that looks at what happened during those year, those years um, and gets people to be more knowledgeable about it and to draw their own conclusions. Did anything surprise you in particular about the Lindsay administration and putting this all together? Well, it's interesting. We're actually standing here in the exhibition now in a section called City by Design. And I think that even for some of our um, scholarly advisors, 
the uh, Lindsay interest in planning and design came as something as a revelation. Some of the more um, confrontational moments of the Lindsay administration are well remembered and, of course, highly disputed, like the, the strikes, the uh, Ocean Hill-Brownsville and the school crisis, the snowstorm in 1969. But maybe less remembered are some of the initiatives that Lindsay undertook in terms of his interest in urban form and in design and a belief that uh, the city could be reshaped by planning and by elevating the status of design in the city. So uh, that came, I, I think that'll come as news to a lot, of, a lot of visitors, and it's interesting to see the ways in which some of the things that they pushed for then, like restricting the, um, the automobile and, and promoting pedestrianism and advancing the idea of Lower Manhattan as a 24-hour place with mixed-use residents and, and commercial uh, and retail all combined, the ways that those ideas actually resonate very much today. And we have John Lindsay to thank for air conditioning in the subway, am I right? Well, John Lindsay did buy the first air-conditioned subways and buses for New York City. And there's a wonderful um, poster over uh, that's on view, a photograph of a woman sitting in a bus, and she's sitting underneath an advertisement that came from the Lindsay administration that said that this air-conditioned bus comes to you courtesy of John Lindsay, a man who's been in the hot seat. <laughs> If you had to choose a song to be the soundtrack of this exhibit, what song would it be, Sarah? The book by Sam Roberts, uh, he's the editor of the book, argues that the, the mood of the era was set by Man of La Mancha. And he argues that to dream the impossible dream was really the anthem of this era. So I think I'll go with Sam Roberts on that question. All right, and we'll go out with that song right here on Cityscape, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for coming to the museum. To fight the unbeatable foe. Sarah Henry is the deputy director and chief curator of the Museum of the City of New York. The John Lindsay exhibit runs through October 3rd. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Podarki. My thanks to producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. Right the unrightable wrong to love pure and chaste from afar to try when your arms are too weary 